Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Radio Westeros, House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 1, The Heirs of the Dragon. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's so great to be here to begin our reviews of House of the Dragon. Today we'll be talking about episode one. Uh, some of it will be reaction and evaluation as well as plenty of book comparisons because we are at heart hardcore book fans so you'll get some deeper insights related to the text. And today there's some really exciting things to discuss from the book canon so we look forward to that. We'll avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon as much as we can, but we will have a spoilers all book super spoilery section at the end of the episode, and that will give our unsullied audience a giant heads up for that one. So whatever your Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones background, we have a lot to offer, and we'll certainly be ready to fill in the blanks about the lore and story depth that the show understandably skirts over. So if you're looking for a companion to House of the Dragon, we're ready to heighten your appreciation of the show and the story from whence it came and George R.R. R. Martin's world in general. So join us every week live at 7 Eastern on YouTube or catch the podcast version soon after. And so why don't we begin? Let's say hello to my Radio Westeros co-host, Lady Gwyn. Hello. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. We are here uh, reviewing episode one. It's finally happened. We've been waiting for this forever. And um, yeah, we are so excited. Lots to talk about today. Welcome back, Emily the Erie. Hi, welcome back to me and, and my dogs today, actually. So. And your puppies. <laughs> yes, maybe they'll make a cameo later. Yes. <laughs> Before we begin our analysis, we want to mention that Radio Westeros is supported by our patrons. And if you want to be a patron of the show, uh, that would be great. You can find us on Patreon, and we have lots of perks 
for patrons, including uh, early release of our regular episodes, and many other things you can find out at patreon.com slash radioestro. So before we get started, we're going to give a quick shout out to some of our patrons, our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Chris B., The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltu, John Wargarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jibjab Hut Duck Shop, House Motto, We Forge the Chains We Wear in Life. Sir Tim is in the chat. Yeah, thanks everyone. So let's begin our analysis. And it's quite funny, guys, because the first thing I have in this document is to discuss the intro sequence. So I, this is one of the things I was looking forward to most this episode, and I was so excited. And then there was no, there was no intro sequence. But I am told that there is going to be an intro sequence next week. So look forward to that. I could be be excited all over again. So let's get straight into the into the action. The episode opened with scenes from the Great Council of One Hundred and One. This council is, is a pivotal moment in Fire and Blood. It's a hugely important event that changed the course of history and the decisions made there echoed into the next generation and fed directly into this civil war that we're going to see unfold. However, in House of the Dragon, the writers were really up against it. Setups in these long prestige shows with a wide cast and complex plot lines are really difficult to ground. So the decision to take the Great Council down to its bare minimum does make sense for the TV show. It's a shame we didn't get more Jaharis, for example, and more details about the family dynamics, but we can appreciate why this was pared down. For example, the show told us that Rainies and Viserys were descendants of Jaharis, but didn't really explain their places in the family tree. And even then, it simplified the real factors being evaluated by the council. So, as book readers, Lady Gwyn, why don't you fill in the gaps the show understandably glossed over there? All right, I will. Uh, Rhaenys was the daughter of Aemon, Jaehaerys' oldest son, and Viserys was the son of Balon, the second son, who are mentioned but not by name in the scene. Uh, they just says Jaehaerys' two sons have died. We talked about this last week in our preview episode, but as a reminder, in Fire and Blood, the Great Council of 101 was actually the second time Jaehaerys had addressed his succession. About 10 years previously, when his eldest son Aemon died, Jaehaerys had skipped over Rhaenys, pregnant at the time with a child that could have been a boy, in favor of Balon. In that case, it was a granddaughter versus a son. Balon's death in 101 was the event that precipitated the Great Council in the book, which uh, pitted the claims of uh, two of, well, one of Jaehaerys' grandchildren and, uh, technically speaking, uh, his great-grandson against each other. Like all family trees, House Targaryens is very complicated, made worse by their habit of sibling, cousin, and even aunt, uncle, and other relationships that we don't have to get into marriages, but uh, I can fully appreciate why they told this story in the simplest possible terms they could, because they had to focus on what was important. First of all, bringing us viewers back into the world. It's been a while since Game of Thrones, and this is a different focus, and they really needed to 
get us back into this world. They're setting up this story as a family drama, introducing all the main characters in this scene. Viserys being chosen the heir over the uh, the arguably senior claim of Princess Rhaenys here on our screen, shown at the Great Council. Uh, that also sets up one of the major themes of the series, that of a woman inheriting the Iron Throne. Uh, and one final note, for what it's worth, I really enjoyed the narration by Emma Darcy. Uh, I'd never really understood the previous show's aversion to voiceovers as a device, because I think that done well, they can be very effective, especially in a in a prologue type of scene. So I really did like that. This scene was a lot shorter than I thought it would be, and probably most of us thought or hoped for more. But in hindsight, it made sense. It felt just right. It hit all the right notes, and it moved us right into the action. There was a lot of ground to cover in this episode. Yeah, you guys have put a lot, a lot of that really well so far. You know, just from a reaction standpoint, I'd like to say that I love the set here. You know, while casual viewers might be confused about a ruined castle that the council took place in, it, I thought it was just such a beautifully designed set piece and a nod to the book readers who are familiar with Heron Hall. I know we visited it technically in Game of Thrones as well, but this was like a whole nother level of, of Heron Hall for me. You know, a century after Aegon the Conqueror's dragon Beleriand laid waste to the largest castle in Westeros, we get to see the full might of the Targaryen monarchy on display amongst the ruins that their forefather made. It's it's such a nice lead-in to the scene later in the episode where Viserys and Rhaenyra talk about their destiny and the power of dragons in front of that skull. And, and coincidentally, that skull belonged, that's Beleriand's skull, who not only destroyed Harrenhal, but later was ridden by King Viserys until his death. So uh, we'll talk more about that scene later, but I just wanted to call that out. The next scene, which is really the, the proper beginning of the show, is quite stunning. It's Rhaenyra entering the story on Dragonback. What an introduction of a character who's clearly being set up as the focus of the show, along with the production team really flexing their power with the with the VR soundstage at Leavesden Studios. You're going to hear me talk about this a lot. This place is absolutely cutting edge, going way beyond the augmented reality CGI dragons and direwolves that were used in Game of Thrones, taking the leap into full VR which allows the team to give us entire locations that are completely computer-realized, like a dragon swooping through a cloudscape, but certainly not limited to that. Actual physical locations, castles, and we see part, a part of King's Land, a big shot of King's Landing, uh, that is completely VR. The show, in spite of its very rich medieval feel, is really one of the most, if not the most, technologically advanced television shows ever made, and it really shows right from the start. Uh, next, keeping uh, moving along with Rhaenyra, uh, you're introduced to Rhaenyra and her friend Alicent Hightower. They're immediately framed as the best of friends, the king's daughter and the hand's daughter. They're clearly very close. Rhaenyra declares uh, she just can't wait for her dragon to get big enough to mount two riders, meaning she wants to go flying with Alicent, which is just so incredibly sweet. And really, there's so there's an innocence to this um, this relationship between these two girls. There is 
definitely an implied uh, romantic attraction between them. Let me just see, I know I have a slide. <laughs> there it is, there they are. Uh, that's been confirmed by the actors who portray them. But, you know, we know from the start that nothing could ever come of that because of who Rhaenyra is. She's, you know, she's a princess and a Targaryen and a dragon rider. So really what we're left with is they're kids, they're best friends, they're in love. They have this sweet, very naive closeness that, to be honest, was probably very common amongst young women who were castle-bred because these these girls and young women really spent most of their time with other people of the same sex. So additionally, we uh, get the sense that Rhaenyra is much more adventurous and less traditional than the two of the two. She's a dragon rider after all. Alicent seems a lot more concerned with rules and appearances and what the Septa might think. Rhaenyra, definitely not so much. So uh, you get their relationship and some critical differences between them that we're going to keep our eyes on. And by the way, one more thing about these scenes that you see with Rhaenyra and Alicent early on. There's a scene of them reading in the Castle Godswood that's I think it's quite breathtaking visually and goes a long way towards their individual character development. Let's address the fact that uh, in this scene, they're sitting under a weirwood tree and we all know it. People have been saying it. There's no weirwood tree at the Red Keep in A Song of Ice and Fire in Game of Thrones. So some people have found this to be weird and accurate or a retcon, but I'm going to point out that a lot of time has passed since this scene, uh, almost 200 years. 180 something years and many things can happen. I, I don't know if it will be explained somewhere, but I've got the possible explanation for you right now that I'm going with in my head canon. At some point, some king, probably Baylor the Blessed, who, as you might know, comes along a couple of generations after the end of this show, and he's a religious zealot in the faith of the seven, ordered the heart tree cut down. He didn't approve and said, get rid of it. So, you know, that's not unprecedented because we do see Melisandre uh, get rid of the seven at Dragonstone. She sacks the sept and burns the seven. So that sort of thing definitely happens. And I don't think we have to view this as necessarily a retcon or a discontinuity. The, so we can move on to another thread that carries throughout the episode, Damon and Rhaenyra. We probably have a lot to say about this. <laughs> These scenes uh, are part of establishing Rhaenyra's relationships within her family and at court. And we're going to talk about some more specifics in the spoiler section but uh, later on. But from the start, it's obvious that this relationship is very important to the show's arc. This, this scene and the later one really let us know we should keep our eyes on uh, these two. Given Damon's personality and the fact that his niece is a child in the early episodes, you know, we might feel like maybe it's a little uncomfortable at times. But I do think it's important just to the narrative that they're establishing a genuine sense of affection between them right from the start. So what do you think, Anne? Yeah, you know, I think there's this clear and implied closeness between the uncle and niece right away. And and I, I think it can be read a couple of different ways, depending on which scene we're looking at. But yeah, expect to watch that for, uh, you know, changes down the road. 
you know, when Damon turns up at the Red Keep, he doesn't bother to attend the small council meeting. He doesn't say hi to his brother. And instead, the first person that we're shown with is Rhaenyra. In a very showy, very Damon way, he's, you know, kicked back sitting on the Iron Throne. We, we know that it's a big deal for anyone but the king and, and maybe the hand to sit the Iron Throne. You know, we can recall from a lot of Ned Stark chapters in the main series that he never forgives Jamie for casually sitting on the throne after killing Ares. Harold Westerling of the Kingsguard gasps when he sees Damon up there, but Rhaenyra really doesn't seem bothered by it. Uh, you know, she tells him, it's fine, it's fine. She and Damon converse in kind of a mildly teasing tone that implies a lot of closeness and a history between, you know, uncle and niece, as does the High Valyrian that they speak to each other. We meet, you know, obviously several Targaryens or branch Targaryens this episode, but these two are the only ones who speak in High Valyrian in the episode. In some interviews, Emma Darcy, who plays adult Rhaenyra, and Matt Smith reference High Valyrian as Rhaenyra and Damon's love language. So they're definitely going for that angle of implied intimacy when they're speaking it. I'll also note that the Dragon Keepers do speak High Valyrian as well, um, which is apparently the language that dragons understand, which, you know, it is it carries through from Game of Thrones as well. And then to further highlight their shared Valyrian culture, which is something that is going to be a theme throughout the show, Damon also gifts Rhaenyra that Valyrian steel necklace, saying that now they both have a piece of their heritage. Yeah, so like you say, it can be read different ways, and I think it would be going into spoilers to sort of elaborate on that. But I will say if you got a creepy vibe from from these scenes with the fr the sort of intimate framing of the necklace being put on, then, you know, maybe it wasn't in your imagination, but we'll have to see how that pans out. So while we're on the subject of Damon, yeah, let's take a closer look at this guy, Matt Smith. As I said on Twitter, I found it quite funny that House of the Dragon got hold of the beloved clean-cut Doctor Who and then had him naked and doggy styling within five minutes. The scene with Mysaria harkens back to the sexy time of Game of Thrones, which was described as soft porn by the bewildered S Stephen Delane, obviously remaining in character as Stannis Baratheon when he made those comments. And then, of course, the scene with Damon as commander of the City Watch does bring up more, brings up modern themes with a the theme of pre police brutality. We see him stirring up his men there. He claims to be acting for the good of King's Landing, but clearly revels in the mass mutilations and the power of his position. So Damon refers to the gold of the City Watch's cloaks and in book canon, he is actually the one who gives the City Watch these gold cloaks in the first place. They never had these cloaks before he came along. So I dug up the corresponding book passage to these brutal scenes that we saw last night on King's Landing. I'm just going to read a paragraph here. Governance bored this warrior prince. He did better when King Viserys made him commander of the City Watch. Finding the watchmen ill-armed and Clad in oddments and rags, Damon equipped each man with dirk, short sword and cudgel, armoured them in black ring mail and gave them long golden cloaks that they might wear with pride. Ever since, the men of the City Watch have been known as gold cloaks. Prince Damon took eagerly to the work of the gold cloaks and oft prowled the alleys of King's Landing with his men. 
that he made the city more orderly, no man can doubt. But his discipline was a brutal one. He delighted in cutting off the hands of pickpockets, gelding rapists, and slitting the noses of thieves, and slew three men in street brawls during his first year as commander. So with that quote and with the scene on TV, they have some crucial insight into Damon's worldview. He's bored by the thought of governance. And so that might shape his fuller reaction to being banished from court in this episode. He's proud and wants to raise standards, so does in fact display some good leadership skills in a sense, although he is prepared to employ savage methodology to leave his mark. These gold cloak scenes were important in portraying him as someone the small council would have good reason to fear gaining absolute power. And he's compared to Magor the Cruel, the third Targaryen king, and one who entirely lived up to his cruel moniker. The fear of a new Magor is very real in this universe, and Daemon is compared to him in both book and show canon. But does he really deserve that comparison? Well, Lady Gwyn, why don't you tell us about Damon and if you think he deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as Magor the Cruel? Damon is the rogue prince. That's how we first got our introduction to him in the short story, The Rogue Prince, that appeared in the collection Rogues uh, back in 2014, the year we started this podcast. I feel like Damon was the brother who took after his and Viserys' mother, Princess Alyssa, who was described as a free spirit. She loved riding, and climbing, and sword play, and above all, riding her dragon. Alyssa described herself as as body a wench as any barmaid in King's Landing. And she unfortunately died when Damon was three years old. Considering that reputations are often enhanced or even become legendary in death, I imagine that Damon aspired to be like her from an early age. The old king gifted him Dark Sister, also at a very early age. I believe he was 16. And then shortly after, he was married off to Lady Rhea Royce of the Vale. I think that this was probably fairly intentional on his father's part, given that Viserys would naturally have been viewed as Balon's heir, and Damon's tendencies might have been running riot in the capital, even back then when he was in his teens. So sending young sons to mellow out in the hinterlands wasn't an uncommon or even terrible solution. But it didn't work with Damon because within a few years, his father was dead and he came back to the capital to advocate his brother's claim. And he was there and threatening violence uh, in, in Fire and Blood during the Great Council of 101. I think it's important to note that at this time, Damon fully supported his brother. And nor do we have ever any hint that he actively worked against Viserys once he became king. Other than his extremely tasteless insistence on declaring himself his brother's heir in the face of Emma's repeated fertility issues, he was really quite supportive uh, of, you know, his brother's kingship. Is he a scoundrel, a wastrel, and probably overprivileged and not at all a very nice person? Undoubtedly. But is he Magor the Cruel come again? I, I don't buy it. I My take is... That's a slander by Otto Hightower, who um, mostly has his own agenda. As Damon points out to his brother in this episode, uh, Otto, you know, wants things that he wants for himself. 
uh, Bakor was horrible and violent. He was as much a beast as any man ever described in the pages of Westeros history. And speaking of history, which is often slanted and rarely objective in nature, we should remember that not only are most of the histories written by maesters of the Citadel, who reside in Old Town, uh, but that Magor's first wife was a Hightower, the, uh, the head of which house is known as the protector of the Citadel. And of course, here we have Sir Otto Hightower as the Hand of the King. In, so in Viserys' day, we really can't ignore the possibility that the maesters of the Citadel, who by their nature would lend their support to House Hightower, and the Hand of the King, who, you know, like I said, clearly have agendas of their own, are going to use this historical comparison with a king who was particularly reviled by them, and by really by everybody, uh, as propaganda to defame a political enemy. Uh, I'll be making my own mind up about Damon. Thank you very much. I don't need Otto Hightower to tell me what to think about him. <laughs> uh there are a couple of ways in which Damon might not be too dissimilar from Magor, though, and it, it could be these types of, uh, you know, similarities that uh, at least one of them, one major one, that led to Otto first making this comparison. They were both gifted with Dark Sister at a very young age, and uh, you know, Magor eventually named his niece his heir, while Damon would eventually support his niece as the heir. So that comes later, of course. Getting back to the scene with Mycaria that Yoke Boy mentioned at the beginning of this section, I hope you all caught the fact that when he, uh, Damon, couldn't finish the job, Mycaria suggested that maybe she could bring in a maiden, even perhaps a silver-haired one if he wanted. If, you know, really implying that probably she knows that's something he's into. So for me... That's about the worst that can be said about the character so far. Definitely shades of Jorah Mormont cringe there. And I'm sure it's meant to tie in with the scene between Damon and Rhaenyra that we discussed just a few minutes ago. So a huge ick factor, but really nothing Magor level it, as far as I can see yet. Yeah, you know, I mean, bringing that up, I think it's a good time to also touch on some of the, the council's feelings or comments and reactions to Damon particularly in his role of, you know, commander of the watch. So master of coin, Lord Beesbury references the costs associated with outfitting the gold cloaks. You know, Yoke Boy already told us what that entailed. And we see Viserys actually rebuff Beesbury here saying, you know, well, don't you want the realm to be strong? Don't, you know, aren't, isn't this a good and worthy effort of our gold? You know, this is, of course, before we see how Damon puts his gold cloaks to use. So, you know, the next morning, the next council meeting, Otto Hightower wastes absolutely no time capitalizing on the butchering in his campaign to discredit Damon and estrange him from the king. But Corliss Velaryon does somewhat come to Damon's defense, foreshadowing the two of them as potential allies. Um, this will be important as we look to some of the looming dangers in the Stepstones. That whole scene ends with Viserys hapless and hopeful, suggesting that perhaps increased guard presence and general ferocity with the gold cloaks could be a deterrent to crime, a good thing, he says. I'll um, talk about Corlys Valerian in Council. This is our main introduction to the Sea Snake. I was really looking forward to seeing Corlys. He was shown standing by his wife's side in the Great Council scene, but here we start to get a sense of who he is 
as a counsellor and one of Viserys's main allies. Being a mariner and the master of ships, his main concern is for the principal waterways that surround Westeros, those very important shipping lanes. And he's concerned with trade and the potential for unfavourable outcomes in Westeros based on some intelligence that he's received. Why don't you go on Emily? Yeah, sure. You know, so in that council, we get a brief introduction to this conflict that's broiling in the Stepstones uh, through Corlys. We learn that there's this alliance of the three cities that's calling themselves the Triarchy. Um, in the books, this specifically references three specific free cities, which are Mir, Tyros, and Lys. The forces of the Triarchy have massed on Bloodstone. Again, I don't expect you to whip out your maps right now or anything. But they're uh, apparently ridding the Stepstones of pirates. And, and many of the council actually sees this as a good thing when first informed. The Stepstones are this grouping of islands between the continents of Westeros and Essos, where the free cities are. And pirates there, you know, make trade between the continents more challenging. So freeing the Stepstones of pirates on its face doesn't sound too bad. Lord Corliss, who made his fortunes via his port and his own trips at sea, understands the threat a little bit better. His intelligence is a little bit better. There's this self-styled King Admiral of the Triarchy, he says, named Cragas uh, Drehar, a.k.a. the Crab Feeder, who he fears will create more trouble down the road for sea trade. You know, anyone calling themselves a King Admiral probably uh, needs to be watched closely. For now, the council kind of ignores that threat, but we can expect to see a little bit more on this later. It actually kind of reminds me of early scenes of Game of Thrones or in the book uh, Game of Thrones, you know, with Ned at council and the the rest of the council wanting to focus on tourneys and kind of service level things instead of, you know, national security or finances or anything of, of value. So as I mentioned before, Four, uh, Corliss does seem to favor Damon's methods, taking that offensive approach to national security. So again, I would say keep an eye on that pairing as things heat up in the Stepstones later. Okay. So this scene is also our, you know, or this, these council scenes are our major introduction to uh, several other characters who are going to be important in this episode and uh, especially in the future. You get Grand Maester Melos, much more on him later. Lord Lyman Beesbury, who, let me just point out that later on, Lyman, who doesn't seem to approve of Damon here, he does uh, wait, you know, lay a bet in favor of Damon during the tourney. So apparently he approves of him if there's money involved for him. So uh, he is the master coin after all. And then, of course, you get Lord Lionel Strong, the master of laws. So, so much for councils. Yoke Boy, what do you got to tell us about uh, visions, dreams? Yeah, why don't we talk about... There's going to be lots to talk about with prophecies and visions today, and a lot of that is going to come later. But why don't we focus on Viserys and his vision of his heir on the Iron Throne? So Viserys tells his queen about a dream of his son on the throne... Here's what he says about it. The dream, it was clearer than a memory. And I heard the sound of thundering hooves, splintering shields and ringing swords. And I placed our son upon the Iron Throne. And all the dragons roared as one. So dragon dreams, as they're known, are a really hot topic in the fandom right now, inspired by the show. And we'll be talking more broadly, like I said, later on. Um, 
when we assess the revelation about Aegon the Conqueror's dream. But the long and short of it is that Targaryens experience prophetic dreams, which really, you know, magical dreams, and they're called dragon dreams. They don't necessarily have to be about actual dragons. The dragons refer to the Targaryens who have them. If this is confusing, it's meant to be. In the books and prequel novellas, Targaryens are seen to dream about dragons and often interpret them as actual real dragons when the dream is is giving them pure symbolism and the dragons are symbolizing Targaryens. So the first lesson about these dreams is that they are confusing, they are tricksy and they are non-literal. The figurative nature of their manifestation means that while Targaryens experience them vividly, they often misinterpret their meaning. And, you know, that that makes them more interesting as a, a plot device. George has said that he doesn't like to make prophecies too literal or too easy. But, you know, there are a lot of prophecies in A Song of Ice and Fire, so they all follow this theme of misinterpretation. So when Viserys has a dragon dream about his unborn son taking the throne, he's so confident of the child being a healthy boy, he calls a great tourney to celebrate this male heir's birth even before he's born. So he's putting so much faith in these tricksy prophecies and it can be a big mistake, which is, like I said, an established theme of the books. And what do you know? It is a mistake. What do you think, Lady Gwyn? Well, you know, I think what had probably happened here is Viserys had a vision of his heir and assumed that it was a son. It's a typical Westerosi prophecy. Man has a dream or vision, jumps to conclusions, assumes the heir is a son, and or assumes it's going to be a certain way, and then everything goes sideways. Uh, Viserys basically is tricked by his vision. He plans the celebratory tourney, thinking it would be this great moment when his son was finally born. But in reality, his heir was by his side all along. However, the tourney does set things in motion. And uh, certainly the day of the tourney, events that we'll talk about shortly that have nothing to do with the tourney itself, really, uh, are going to have a significant impact on the story going forward, perhaps leading to the other elements of the dream coming true. Consider the fact that the dream features thundering hooves and splintering shields and dragons roaring, and I don't think it's too spoilery to suggest that Viserys had a vision of the Dance of the Dragons, which is the historical event this show is based upon that will indeed precede his heir sitting on the Iron Throne. As usual, George illustrates very potently that you should never try to make a prophecy come true. Yeah, and like we said, we will be going in-depth with more prophecy work later on. So following the prophecy about thundering hooves and splintering shields, let's look at this tourney. This event was described by Miguel Sapochnik as the chance to show some action and give us a glimpse at the large-scale conflict to come. I think that having a tourney was a really good call here, as not only did it bring in some action, but it served to illustrate how the years of peace and prosperity under Jaehaerys had not quenched this animalistic urge for men to tear into each other and spill some blood. 
in this sense, it was a sort of indictment of human nature, I think, suggesting that there's this innate bloodlust in us that's always bubbling away, even in a time of peace. And, you know, perhaps in a time of peace, it's growing and simmering and coming to the surface. So it also gave exposition to two important characters for this season, Damon, who we've already talked about and we're getting to know, and Kristen Cole, who we'll, we'll be discussing in just a minute. Focusing on Damon, we see in the tourney that he is fearless, he's battle competent, and that he revels in combat and conflict. And this is really in contrast to his brother Viserys, who he later calls weak. Damon is a man of action. He's cocksure and he's so confident to the point of arrogance. He is a live wire character who is inherently drawn to or instigating conflict wherever he goes. And thus he's going to be a great catalyst for drama going forward in the show. In his scenes in the lists, he first faces Gwen Hightower, and that is the eldest son of Hand of the King, Otto Hightower. And after taking a hit in the first tilt, he turns around and aims for Gwen Hightower's horse's legs. And that's how he wins the tilt. And I, I think that this could have been made clearer by the writers, but my interpretation is that much like Loras Tyrell's selection of a mare in heat that confused Gregor Kilgain's mount at the hands tourney, Damon's tactics here were gamesmanship. He was breaking acceptable customs and rules to win. Well, you know, he, he is the brother of the king. What are you going to say? It's like you know, arguing with Joffrey in a way. Unlike Loras Tyrell, however, Damon's gamesmanship was done dangerously and in, pl in plain sight for everyone to see. He is a rogue character. You're going to hear that word a lot. He makes no effort to hide his dastardly nature. After that moment, we see other tourney participants fighting, scrapping, and even killing each other. And again, this is just my interpretation, but I think that Damon's skullduggery in aiming for the horse and not the rider inspired all of this tension to boil over. I think that's the, the, the way it should have been portrayed anyway. And this ultimately gives the king's celebratory tourney a really bad look as Corliss is seen to point out to Rainey's. So if that wasn't clear or if that's just my interpretation, I think that's the way it should have been portrayed and perhaps... There could have been a couple of lines of dialogue to sort of make it clear that Damon might have been cheating or, you know, be behaving poorly in his in the list there. But as it stands, the scenes were part of the groundwork for the war to come. And as a side note, I do wonder what Otto Hightower thought of Damon's tactics against his son there. Mm, good question. Just going off his expression, I don't know. Did not seem very amused by the whole thing. Regarding this tourney, it's worth noting that George has said that one of the aspects of season one of Game of Thrones that disappointed him most was the relatively small scale of the hands tourney. So here we are, out of the gates, episode one. Miguel Sapochnik says, you know, we're gonna we're we're doing this thing. 
giving him what he wants, really, right? We get the bright banners. You've got knights from all over the, the realm. Exactly the pageantry George wanted. This scene is absolutely marvelous at creating that pastiche. We've got names and sigils recognizable to most viewers. Uh, I could I caught the sigils or references to House uh, Massey, Tarly, Baratheon, Stokeworth, Tully, Tyrell, Hightower, Lannister, Bolton, Morgan, Corbray, and Malister, just to name a few. I'm sure there were others that I missed. Uh, you know, medieval tournaments were a really potent show of power and wealth, and in particularly martial arts and excellence in these knightly arts. From the melee, you've got the melee, which usually formed the centerpiece of most tourneys and is, in fact, where the name tourney comes from. The French word tournée means to swing around, which is uh, what dueling teams of mounted knights in formation would actually do during a melee of mounted knights in order to come back and make repeated passes at each other. Uh, then you've got the jousting, which is the majority of what we see in this scene and what most modern audiences associate with tournaments. Jousting was meant to be a show of excellence and heavy cavalry expertise, mainly, but it also later evolved by the High Middle Ages as a form of chivalry with many, many rules and customs governing it. And among these are, you know, wearing a lady's favor. We see several knights requesting ladies' favors, and not only... Do these exchanges add significant interest to the three ladies in question? It really adds to the verisimilitude of the scene, and it fleshes out some of the backstory, or makes us wonder what's going to happen next. Additionally, the violence of this tourney, and it is extremely violence, uh, violent, as Yoke Boy alluded to. You do have people actually just outright chopping each other to bits in front of the king, who's like, Yay! <laughs> it's juxtaposed with Queen Emma's birthing scene, which we'll be discussing in a moment. And you also mentioned that this tourney introduces a young knight from the Stormlands called Kristen Cole. Yeah, very, uh, very excited to talk about Kristen Cole. He's introduced right out of the gate as the sympathetic, unproblematic underdog character. In contrast to the brutality and underhandedness of Damon's tactics against his early opponents, Cole is seen winning his first tilt without, you know, purposely murdering anyone's mount or slapping around his own squire. We get a bit of exposition about him from Harold Westerling, and then Allison and Rhaenyra speak a bit more about him. And that whole exchange feels very Sansa and Jane oogling the Knight of Flowers in A Game of Thrones. And it again serves to tell us about their characters, the girls' characters, as well as gives us the basics on Cole. He, as Gwyn said, he's a Stormland knight, common-born son of the house of uh, Dondarrion's steward, and he's evidently visibly Dornish. This gives him this outsider's vibe right away, as Dorn hasn't even been brought into their realm yet, and because Cole is not draped in wealth and prestige like the knights of the noble house of Baratheon that he's been unhorsing. His armor is rather plain and a bit ill-fitting, especially compared to the tourney armor that Prince Damon is sporting around in. By the time these two are actually paired together in the lists, uh, we have a very clear picture of the, you know, chivalrous Sir Cole and the dastardly rogue prince. 
They go for a few tilts. The action escalates. Damon is not enjoying this challenge, I don't think, and continues to just be an absolute dick to the squires and attendants who are trying to help him until Cole hits him with a blow that sends him kind of scraping along the, the rail, separating the two knights before knocking him on his ass. This is when Damon calls for his sword, the famed Valyrian steel blade Dark Sister. Cole appears to acquiesce to this continued challenge and draws this morning his morning star. This is his signature weapon and something that book readers no doubt have been expecting to see. Prince Damon and Sir Kristen trade vicious blows, and there's a moment where Damon appears to have won. We see him with arms open, standing tall, accepting the cheers and adoration of the crowd. But then we see Sir Kristen rise and take him unawares, knocking him down and kicking away Dark Sister. Cole tells him twice to yield, knowing that he has Damon, but he's seems unwilling to strike the prince a mortal blow. Damon, in very roguey fashion, smirks, rises, and huffs off. Throughout this entire battle, from start to finish, as, as we've already mentioned, we've been cutting back and forth to Emma's labor, uh, which we'll talk about in much greater detail in a moment here. But it's interesting to see how they've juxtaposed the two brothers together here. We see both Viserys and Damon in the grips of their hubris, prematurely celebrating something that hasn't truly come to pass yet. Viserys has this entire tournament set. Uh, to honor his new male heir before the babe has been born. And Damon, on a smaller scale, is celebrating his victory over Cole, who has not yet yielded. Both men are brought low at this moment, Damon quite literally, and now must face the consequences. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right. So now let's talk about this Queen Emma and Prince Balon the babe that uh, everyone is eagerly expecting. Early in the episode, we are introduced to Queen Emma, who is Emma Aaron. We talked about her in our uh, preview episode. She's actually there. Uh, Damon, Viserys, and Rhaenys Targaryen's first cousin. Her mother was a Targaryen princess who married Lord Roderick Aaron. So uh, she is obviously in this first scene on the Westerosi equivalent of bed rest, late in her seventh pregnancy. And Rhaenyra, her daughter, is concerned for her mother's well-being, and she claims that all the attendants only care about the babe. 
that is some serious foreshadowing right there. Emma tells Rhaenyra that, you know, we have royal wombs. You'll be in this position one day. And this is kind of just what our lot in life is. We're basically baby makers, uh, the royal broodmare. She says something also that is taken directly from A Song of Ice and Fire, a sentiment that's repeated several times, uh, usually by men, and notably by Aaron Greyjoy, who references this twice, and Randall Tarley uh, says it as well. A woman's war is fought in the birthing bed. Emma, you know, she really seems very sad about it, but basically resigned to this fate. You know, this is the way life is for women, especially royal women. Uh, it, the next scene with Emma, you know, shows her soaking in a bath, talking to her husband. It's a very domestic scene, and we really do get the sense that there's genuine love between the king and his queen. But we also get to see Viserys' complete conviction that the babe in her belly is a boy. Emma isn't so so sure. She gently tries to prepare her husband for disappointment, and then she tells him that this pregnancy has to be the last. Since Rhaenyra's birth, she's had two miscarriages, two stillbirths, and a cradle death. One living child from six pregnancies is not a great success rate, and she tearfully apologizes, but she is very firm that she's mourned enough dead children and that there will be no more after this one, no matter what comes of this pregnancy. So that part right there is extremely important because as the actual birth plays out in the scenes uh, that are cut with the tourney being held in honor of this birth, Viserys is going to be faced with a choice, an impossible choice, as it says, but one that is given to him and him alone by Archmaester Melos. So on to breaking down the this birth scene itself. Uh, obvious trigger warning here for anyone who has experienced pregnancy loss or trauma. If you need to mute now for a few minutes, we get it. As Emma's labor, labor progresses, it becomes obvious this baby is presenting breach. That is, he's either sideways or he's feet first. He is not in the head down position that is required for a normal and safe delivery, especially in this very medieval setting. In spite of all their efforts, maesters and midwives cannot turn the baby. And after hours of grueling and excruciating labor, Melos takes the king aside and tells him that Emma's going to die, but they might be able to save the baby. And here's where those early conversations come into play. Emma is, to the maester, nothing more than a royal womb. And that baby is the primary importance, exactly as Rhaenyra had pointed out. And because of their conversation in the bathtub scene, Viserys is well aware that this is his last chance at an heir. Whether Emma survives or not is no longer the issue in order for him to get what he thinks he must have. And remember, people, this is heavily influenced by his dream because he thinks this has to happen. Uh, He thinks it will happen. This baby has to survive. And so he makes that choice to put his wife under the knife, which is going to lead to her certain death, but the possibility of the child surviving. And remember, he is convinced because of that dream that he will have a son on that day. So the problematic issue becomes obvious in the next scene when we see the queen is conscious, alert, and very much in in command of her faculties. 
Rather than present her with the truth, Viserys chooses to lie to her, simply saying they're going to bring the baby out. What follows is some of the most horrific television that many of us have ever seen. Sean Brooke uh, absolutely deserves an award for this scene. The sheer heartbreaking terror that she brings to that performance of a woman who's been denied the agency to make a choice that she probably would have made in a heartbeat, save her child's life at the expense of her own. I don't know anyone that wouldn't. So uh, instead, she's lied to and she is tied down like livestock while the child is cut out of her body. I think we all hate Melos for that and Viserys too, as well, uh, a little or a lot. Uh, you know, bewildered and heartbroken husband act notwithstanding, the king had it in his power to command his army of maesters and midwives to do everything in their power to save his queen, and he just didn't. Later, when Damon tells his brother he's weak, I think we can all agree with him on that score. Of course, anyone familiar with tragic irony in literature could have predicted what happens next. It was all for nothing anyways, because the baby died. And, uh, you know, we never get to see the actual news of this reach Rhaenyra in the tourney box, but we see this commotion playing out around her. And we can tell by her eyes that she's aware of it and that she just knows. She knows what's happened. So the next scene is the funeral pyre of Queen Emma and Prince Balon. And, uh, oops, one more. Yeah, it is um, Rhaenyra and Cyrax who, uh, with her uncle Damon's encouragement, light the pyre for that final goodbye. Sadly, the first of many funerals that we're probably going to see over the course of this series. Um, it's a very, very moving moment. So I do, uh, before we leave this subject, I do want to address some comments from the After the Episode featurette made by Ryan Condal, who I think genuinely meant well. Uh, I think many viewers might have felt that it failed to strike a note of appropriate compassion, but I, I, think he, I think he meant that genuinely. And I do appreciate that they're making the effort to show with really unflinching truthfulness the reality that a woman's life, especially a noble woman's, could be just as violent and dangerous as a man's due to their fate as royal wombs, as Emma put it. I appreciated the juxtaposition of that violence with the tourney violence, and I know showrun the showrunners are making every effort to handle this subject with sensitivity, And nor is its resonance with gender inequalities and reproductive law in modern life lost on me. I don't think that's lost on anyone. Uh, but I have to say, though, that as someone with a background in medieval history, I was particularly amazed by a statistic Condell mentioned in that featurette, that women in those days had a 50% chance of dying in childbirth. And I thought, hmm, that, that sounds strange. So I did a little research. I knew that was wrong. According to data that I retrieved from Cambridge University Press, scholars estimate that the average pregnancy in, medieval, in the medieval era carried with it a 1% risk of death and the average woman having around five pregnancies, her overall chance of dying in childbirth was 5%. Farmer Aaron, let's say, you know, she had seven pregnancies, 7%. She had a history of difficult pregnancies. Maybe 
you could say that by that last pregnancy, she might have had a 10% chance of dying in childbed. That's being generous. I mean, this doesn't mean that it wasn't a dangerous situation. Medieval pregnancy and childbirth was experienced without modern medications, without sterilization, which is the most important thing, um, and often without qualified assistance. Many deaths would probably be associated with the fever that came after a non-sterile environment, you know, being present in the birth. Uh, and we see that. We've talked about that a lot in the past with Lyanna Stark, for instance. But Condal is confusing his statistic with this one. Of the women of childbearing age who die, so if you're in that age group and you die, 50% of those deaths are due to complications of childbirth. And that is not at all the same as what he said, that a medieval pregnancy carried with it a 50% risk of death. So I wanted to be clear about that because I've seen some head scratching about that fact that was casually thrown out there in this featurette. And I thought, you know, perhaps a few people might be wondering if that was true, if it was being used as some sort of justification for Viserys' choice, like, eh, it's 50-50 chance, you know, didn't really matter that much. Uh, that is not what happened here. And with all due respect, someone should probably explain to the showrunners how statistics work. Yeah. Uh, maybe that someone could be Otto Hightower. He seems smart, right? So we're going to talk about Otto next, moving along. So coming right out of the gate with Otto, he's framed as being manipulative, uh, cunning, a schemer. We actually talked about this in the preview episode. This really shouldn't be too much of a surprise to us, you know, based on book text and even the interviews that he was giving and his comparisons with Littlefinger and Tywin Lannister. Um, again, just not much of a surprise. You know, I thought that he even tried to emulate Charles Dance a little bit with his voice acting and delivery in some scenes. The showrunners and uh, Reese Eifens himself really didn't seem to be going for the gray approach with Otto, like most of the characters that we see in this episode. Even when he's at council and playing nice around King Viserys, uh, we see him trying to put other councilor members in their place and uh, control the tone of every meeting. If you thought that he was, you know, doing that to be a strong hand or acting out of selfless love for the realm in those first couple of scenes, you likely were only fooled for a few minutes before it was made abundantly clear who this guy really is. The tourney was already covered in great detail here, so I just want to call out that it really wasn't a great day for Otto, which I was very much enjoying. Uh, his son loses to Otto's chief rival, Damon, and his daughter uh, is kind of forced almost to give Damon her favor, and Otto just has to sit there and take it. Even Lord Beesbury makes five gold dragons on a bet against Sir Gwaine, so... You know, this is, of course, interspersed at the tourney with Otto getting news and whispers on the Queen's progress, which is meant to highlight that he's usually the first to know any important information. Following the death of Queen Emma and Prince Balon, we see Otto in the hands chambers. He's sending a raven to Old Town, uh, where his seat, uh, House Hightower, is located, uh, his, his brother being Lord of the Hightower. Allison enters, you know, visibly upset. And Otto spends about one minute comforting his daughter, whose best friend's mother and brother were just buried like an hour ago. Alicent's also recently lost her own mother, so this is probably really, really difficult for her. But, you know, again, spends about one minute giving her a hug, telling her it's going to be okay before he just starts pimping her out to Viserys. There's absolutely no ambiguity in his actions, and Alicent is immediately awkward and uncomfortable with the idea, meekly pushing back with in his chambers? 
Otto makes his devious intentions for the meetup even more obvious, uh, suggesting that Alicent wear one of her mother's more womanly dresses. Just disgusting and shameful. I now see where some of these parallels to Littlefinger are coming from when they talk about Otto, but, I mean, Baelish was only pimping out his fake daughter, so arguably this is quite a bit worse. You know, Damon seems to be one of the only people who I think actually sees Sir Otto for who he really is or calls it like he sees it. When he and Viserys have their standoff in the throne room, which we're going to talk about in more detail in a minute here, he says as much. And it also gives us insight into how blind King Viserys is to the character of some of the men that he's surrounded by. Uh, Damon says, I see Otto Hightower for what he is. And Viserys kind of like a buffoon suggests an unwavering and loyal hand, but Damon cuts him off, calling him a cunt, a second son who stands to inherit nothing he doesn't seize for himself. Truth. But I do hope that the irony that Damon is himself a second son who stands to inherit nothing he doesn't seize for himself if his brother should happen to have a male heir is lost on no one here. Uh, takes one to no one, I guess. So that, that is being slightly unfair to Damon, who I believe acts very distastefully regarding the succession in several instances, but is mostly in good faith. I mean, really, as far as he's aware and concerned, the Great Council of 101 really settled the issue of succession once and for all. If his brother doesn't have a son, he's the heir. It has to go to a male, right? So what else is going to happen? It's got to go to him. So, uh, you know, he, he's only going to fall to Sir Otto's level if Viserys has a son, which is important, obviously. Uh, speaking of being distasteful, Damon, after uh, the death of his sister-in-law and nephew, hires out a brothel in apparent celebration of his own continued status as heir presumptive. In the process, he toasts his dead nephew as the heir for a day, and naturally this story is broken to the king by, you got it, Otto Hightower, who probably has a snitch following Damon at all times. Viserys summons his brother to the throne room, confronts him, and, uh, you know, I have to say, Damon does have the good grace to look ashamed. I must thank Matt Smith for including that nuance, because it's noted, you know, in Fire and Blood and uh, here in this in this show so far, even in this one episode, many times that Damon loves his brother. And in that scene, if there wasn't any sort of awkwardness or shamefacedness, the character just really wouldn't ring true to me. So, you know, he does look very much ashamed that he's caught being so incredibly offensive. Uh, Viserys bereaved of his wife and child, basically tells Damon that he's being written out of the will, banishes him from court. He orders him to return to his wife in the Vale. And so he goes, but what he actually does is fly away on his dragon Caraxes with Myceria. We haven't talked about Myceria much in this episode, but I, I do hope we, you know, we'll get to see more of uh, how this show is going to characterize her based on the actor's remarks. Uh, I think it's going to be a lot more nuanced than what people expect uh, if you've read Fire and Blood. So it's definitely going to be interesting to see where these two go and what they get up to next, since I think we can all agree it is very unlikely he's going to go calling on his wife with Myceria in tow. Excellent. I just had a quick question for you, Lady Gwyn, because you said that Damon 
made this joke about air for a day, but we didn't see it. So are you 100%, do you 100% believe that he, he did make that remark or could this be more shenanigans? You know, I, he seemed to acquiesce when he was, you know, confronted with that accusation. He did not deny it. Uh, could have been, you know, one of those, could have been one of those cases where, you know, he just didn't see the point in defending himself against this, you know, slander and whatever. But no, I think he probably said it. I do think he probably said it in a very flippant sort of like he thought it was a joke kind of way. I don't know. Maybe he also genuinely meant to toast the kid and thought it was. Uh, I have no idea. Let's move on. <laughs> well, well, it is interesting that that it is there's some ambiguity because, of course, for those of you who haven't read Fire and Blood, that is recounted by two or three different sources sometimes and there's different explanations and no you, you can never be sure because it, it is 100% unreliable narrator you can never be sure which source is correct who's making stuff up who's just trying to tell a uh, you know a, a big story so it is interesting that they have you know carried on that tradition of a- ambiguity what was taken out of context etc yeah so, yes, exactly. Yeah. You didn't hear the tone or, you mm-hmm. know. Okay, so why don't we move on to some Rhaenyra now? Because as a result of some of the things that happened that we've talked about, she is installed as heir and princess of Dragonstone. Rhaenyra is finally recognized by her father as the suitable heir. And we see various lords of Westeros pledging their oaths to her. So really, it's a shame that Viserys didn't see her potential earlier. But now he's made a huge decision. He's very committed, having called in all the lords and time will tell if he's strong enough to stick by it. Remember that he was called weak by his brother. This is the portrayal of him so far is a guy that might be indecisive and not really doesn't always have the backbone to make the decisions that a king has to make. And perhaps he's easily swayed. But this one, it's going to be really difficult for him to undo what he has done. So given the council of 101 deciding against a female candidate came at the beginning of the episode, consider that Viserys might now be going against that very ruling which brought him into power in the first place. So that is a really interesting dynamic to think about and certainly if you consider the the laws of Westeros there, there are many different opinions in the fandom about this. There has been so many debates about to what extent the Great Council ruling set an iron precedent or not. So expect this question to resonate in the fandom and and within the show the further we go into this story because it's going to keep coming back and it, it's central to the, the conflict that's going to evolve. So... Emily, I was wondering what you have to say about the scenes where Rhaenyra is being sworn fealty as official heir to the Iron Throne because I know that you love to talk about costumes. I'll say, go on, talk about some costumes. Yeah, you know I need to talk about the costumes a little bit. So uh, this is a great scene for it, really. Uh, I've been excited to talk about this dress. You know, the costume designer spoke about 
wanting to make certain important dresses for Rhaenyra feel antique to the time that they're being shown, which is difficult, uh, you know, given that we haven't seen uh, anything prior to this in Westeros before, and also culturally accurate, meaning Valyrian, presumably. The quote is, I wanted to do something cultural, but not too recognizable. Their world is completely fantasy, and it's difficult when you're trying to create a unique, antique, and special dress. I think they just did a fantastic job, though. The opulence of the layering, the gold cloth, uh, the very overall royal feel of that black, red, and gold of you know, evoke a really beautiful and wonderful look. It, it almost feels like a coronation gown, even though that's not really what the ceremony is. We saw a lot of black in late thrones, but none of it felt sufficiently regal or had like the formal elegance that Rhaenyra's dress had here. It was all very practical. I'm going to war. We no longer care about our house colors anymore, apparently. So this was really nice. It was it was really special to see on screen. I've loved this look since the trailers, so it was great to see it all laid out. The necklace that she wears, which I know a lot of people have talked about on Twitter, um, are also a great tribute to the great houses of Westeros. As these lords, you know, kneel down and swear to her, she honors the most noble houses. We see Stark, Lannister, Tully, etc. It's a really nice symbolic representation of her understanding of the responsibility, the loyalty, and that connection between a ruler and their subjects. Um, I also liked how we got to see Alicent helping her dress. So, as we're watching this transformation from the girl who just wants to ride her dragon and eat cake into this woman who will sit the Iron Throne, Alicent is there. While Rhaenyra ascends into this new role, Alicent remains unchanged, left behind, and now on her own path. Yeah. Groundwork being done for some really interesting dynamics between certain characters and definitely between Rhaenyra and Alicent. So next, let's talk about prophecy because so much of the discussion I've seen in the fandom is about the prophecy that came at the end of the episode. So yeah, this was a huge reveal for book-interested viewers. As Viserys acknowledges Rhaenyra as his heir, with that decision comes a responsibility that the the king takes very seriously you can tell in his manner he's he's extremely serious about what he's about to convey he reveals to his daughter that like the famous targaryen ancestor Daenys the dreamer aegon the conqueror also had vivid and prophetic dragon dreams Daenys is a pertinent character here it was her prophetic dreams which spurred on the Targaryens to leave Valyria before the whole place went up in flames, which led into the conquering of Westeros a few generations after that. So the Targaryens were not nearly the biggest family in Valyria, but believed in Daenys enough to heed her, you know, bizarre warning, really. And where most of the other Valyrian families must have thought the, the Targaryens were mad and they just remained in the city. They thought, you know, th this is just too weird. And they, they didn't believe in it like the Targaryens did. And they stayed. And sure enough, Daenys' prediction came true with unerring accuracy. The doom came to Valyria, a mysterious cataclysmic event that in book canon is hinted to have been masterminded by a revolting slave or something along those lines. Whatever the doom was, and it sounds like a mass explosion of volcanoes, Valyria was b burned to the ground 
and subsequently became a toxic wasteland that's still dangerous to this day. So having survived all of this due to Targaryen dragon dreams, or perhaps just one dream that Daenerys had, the family, understandably in this, in this case, have taken these dreams very seriously ever since. They really owe everything to these, you know, quite bizarre dragon dreams. The first thing I want to mention about the episode's revelation that Aegon the Conqueror also had these dreams and that his and that this provoked long-standing prophecies that the Targaryens believed in over the years concerning the apocalyptic apocalyptic return of the White Walkers that we saw play out through Game of Thrones is that it has just been confirmed that this information did in fact come directly from George R. R. Martin. Ryan Condal said to Insider Magazine, and I want to give a sh huge shout out to Kim Renfro for this scoop that I think is a really quite a, a beefy scoop here. That was the detail that George actually gave us early in the story break. The idea that Aegon the Conqueror was himself a dreamer and that's what motivated the conquest, Condor said, which he mentioned casually in conversation, as he often does with huge pieces of information like that. So that is coming from Condor, but he's quoting George himself in no uncertain terms. So the notion that Aegon's conquest was motivated by an end of day saving the world prophecy is a huge revelation and actually one that George first referred to when Fire and Blood was released in 2018, although he discussed it as a sort of fan theory, and he kept whether it was true or not really muddy, so no one could... So we were conscious of it, but we couldn't say either way. He didn't commit to saying it was true. So it does seem in hindsight that George wanted to let us know about this aspect of Targaryen history, remembering that it was a guarded secret passed only from monarch to heir. And so the maesters writing fire and blood histories wouldn't have been aware of it. So where could George let us know about this prophecy? So his tactic was to sort of put it out there by hinting about it when Fire and Blood was released. But now, because of Ryan Condor, we, we know for certain that it came from him. This isn't an ideal way of confirming, you, you know, new theories and new discussion. But for us starved book fans, it's an intriguing talking point. You know, at this point, I'll take what I can get. And especially since Aegon named the dream, book readers are going to love this. The Song of Ice and Fire. Song of Ice and Fire. Uh, go figure. It's a central prophecy that informs the entire series. We've been held in suspense for years about this. The only prior reference to the Song of Ice and Fire being Rhaegar with regard to his son Aegon in Danny's vision uh, in the House of the Undying. George could uh, just as easily have revealed this prophecy to us right out of the gate and, you know, told us the nature of the prophecy and let everything flow from there. But instead he's chosen to seed these hints and references in the main series and in the world building and occasionally in interviews, intentionally obscuring his end game. He obviously loves mystery and suspense and uh, so do we basically. So, you know, this is, this is great fun. It's what we live for. Uh, now we know a scion of house Targaryen, 
possibly aided by dragons, is destined to unite Westeros and save the world from this very grave threat. So we've talked about this being likely for years, but having it confirmed right before our eyes is incredibly powerful. And, uh, you know, more on this later in the spoiler section. I, I just wanted to say for now, ultimately, this answer to the question of Targaryen motives over the years that they've reigned over Westeros really inspires more questions than the answers. Did the prophecy get handed down all the way down to Rhaegar? Was it part of his decision to embrace prophecy and eventually father Jon Snow with Lyanna Stark, aptly calling him Aegon? It would be ironic if the prophecy was handed down all these years, only to be lost right when it was needed most. And so the three Targaryen heir candidates at the start of the books, Jon, Danny, and Viserys, remain oblivious to their potential destiny after that, you know, it's been passed down for hundreds of years and then it doesn't reach the people it needs to reach, which obviously makes it more exciting because it creates more more drama. And, you know, in the, in the last couple of books, this is going to come out in a more interesting way than it would have, would have. So further up the ladder, is the prophecy what drove Rhaegar's father Ares mad? Is it what led Aegon V to experiment with wildfire culminating in the tragedy at Summerhall. Suddenly we can look at the entirety of Targaryen history through this new lens. This is exciting stuff for book readers and I'm not surprised that social media is on fire with these kind of conversations. Uh, finally, I want to point out that, yeah, book readers have a lot of to look forward to in show canon D&D had Arya kill the chief White Walker but I think we can all agree that might not happen in the books so the books might contain a flaming sword called Lightbringer and if Jon Snow is the one to kill the big bad White Walkers Aegon's prophecy that, that's for example I know other people think it's Daenerys and that could work too Aegon's prophecy might create a mind-blowing through line and directly come into its full fruition within the pages of a dream of, of spring and the fact that Viserys used the words promising me in the scene where he passes the knowledge onto his heir seems like it could be a nod to Jon Snow there but Whatever happens, I think in the books, expect this all to be a lot more satisfying than the show's version of events, which I think in some respects was a little bit anticlimactic. I don't think it was set up the the way it could be and the way that it will be in the books. Okay, so now we've talked about prophecy, we are going to revisit with some spoilery stuff later but I just wanted to do a couple of light-hearted sections that we're going to do every week like featurettes so today I want to do a dragon watch we'll say a few lines about the dragon action because everyone's so excited it there wasn't major dragon action but it was still very impressive and it was still enjoyable so Lady Gwyn what do you have to say about dragon watch today uh, this week, our Dragon Watch spotted two dragons, Yoke Boy. <laughs> we got the lovely youngster, uh, golden youngster, Cyrax, ridden by Rhaenyra in the opening credits and featured in Emma Aaron's funeral scene. Cyrax is named after the Valyrian goddess. And then you get the deep red bloodworm, Caraxes, the dragon of the rogue prince. Uh, we see 
Daemon Targaryen and his lover Myceria fly away on near the end of the episode. Rhaenyra is Cyrax's first rider, but Caraxes was once ridden by Prince Aemon Targaryen, eldest son of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, and father to Princess Rhaenys Targaryen. So were we satisfied with the look of the dragons? Because they have obviously pumped plenty of HBO money into the the effects. Uh, Emily, what do, do, do they look impressive to you? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, I feel like they you, you really like see the expression in their faces. I felt like by highlighting these first two dragons and not giving us too many at once, we can tell them apart. We get not only like their names, but an idea of their characterization and kind of their bond with their writers. So, yeah, it's it's like when, when you're doing a setup, you have to really. You, you know maneuver the main characters show the audience this is they've got to they've got to set up the dragons like you can't just have loads of dragons at the same time you've got to okay this one and this one so yeah they're setting up the dragon action and uh yeah so far i, I like it so the next feature something we're going to do every week is a quick lightning round called champ or chump so every episode say a uh, a character, you know, who sort of owned the day uh, and who you would call a champ. And then the reverse, you can say a chump who was annoying, who does something bad, who was uh, made some poor decisions, who got owned. So, Lady Gwen, I'll ask you, who is your champ of the week? My champ of the week is Kristen Cole, because he was literally the champion of the tourney. And uh, I felt I owed that to him. uh, This is probably the first and last time you'll ever hear those words from me. So enjoy. I don't think it was easy for you to say that. Behind the scenes, I'd be going, go and give it to Kristen Cole. You're never going to do this ever again in your life. We debated a lot, didn't we? Yeah. (laughs) We did. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I was being serious, there's probably some more worthy evidence. (laughs) Emma Aaron, Rhaenyra. But Kristen literally was the tourney champion yeah so. this is meant to we'll be like quite lighthearted take the so. laurels today yes so let's go to chump chump of the week who's the chump emily okay you know i it would have been easy to choose damon for a lot of reasons but my chump of the week is otto hightower not only for that sequence of his son getting beaten and humiliated by damon at the tourney but even more so for sending his own daughter to Viserys' chambers like ugh, just not over that yeah, there could be quite a few chump candidates today, depending on how serious you want to get. I don't think Viserys put himself in a good light and there was, like you say, Damon. But yeah, Otto for... Melos. Yeah, Melos, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> m- many chumps. You can only choose one. Please please tweet these at us. We want to know. <laughs> yeah, you can tell us your champ <laughs> yes. or chump in the comments. So as we sort of wind the episode down, I want to do a section where... We can all say things that we wanted to say, but because of spoilers and trying to keep it open for non-book readers and unsullied people, we had to sort of bite our tongue. So why don't we go, Lady Gwen, to spoilers or books? Spoilers all books. Okay, so why don't you get us going, Lady Gwen? What, what spoilery topics do you want to discuss briefly here? Well, there's quite a few, <laughs> but... Uh... This one's kind of small. They'll start with something very small, and it's. It, I noticed it right at the very beginning. As soon as they, uh, it was part of the cutscene from the tourney at Hall to the, 
you know, the next, the part with the dragon. But I did notice that a number of times it's a motif that was used in several places. And that is the use of the golden dragon sigil of Aegon II, who doesn't even exist yet in this episode. Uh, but the Targaryen dragon, as I'm sure you all know, is red on black. And there's just the, a number of this, you know, particularly strange inclusions, if you don't know what's coming, of this golden dragon sigil. So, uh, you know, I think there's very little in this show that is unintentional or purely stylistic for no apparent reason. And uh, that's, I think, a very intentional choice right out of the gate. They use two different versions of the Targaryen sigil. I believe in one instance, they were on opposite sides of the gates of the Red Keep. So uh, it's very subtle, but it's uh, just one other little way of foreshadowing things to come. Yeah, I I want to talk a little bit more about sigils too. You know, regarding Emma's death and and sigils, uh, I saw this on Twitter from uh, Bela Breakwind that this episode, you know, makes it even more meaningful when Rhaenyra adds the Aaron Falcon to her arms later. You know, Rhaenyra clearly loved her mother so much, as we saw when they chatted early in the episode. Millie Alcock really sold her concern and love for Emma with so much focus on the air inside her, Rhaenyra assures her mother that she's there to care for her, the woman, not the the womb. Um, in her short time, the actress really made the most of her, or her screen time, allowing the audiences to just absolutely fall in love with Queen Emma and experience her joy, fear, and pain. So I have to agree with Bela. It really does add weight to Rhaenyra's inclusion of that Aaron Falcon on her personal arms later in life, and I can't wait to see it. Mm, agree. Agree. That's a great observation. So uh, next up in spoilery observations, let's talk about the scene where Damon unleashes the gold cloaks and we get that cart of body parts at the end. There he is wreaking havoc in King's Landing. So there's this cart of uh, full of the hands of thieves, the genitals of rapists, the heads of murderers, etc. Apparently, I don't know what else they were cutting off. Those are the things that I remember seeing. Uh, Damon is very much portrayed as being in favor of an eye for an eye type justice. And much later in the story, we're going to come across a character known only as the shepherd, who's a one-handed man from Flea Bottom, whose fiery preaching against Targaryens and dragons in general will have a tragic effect on the future of the entire House of the Dragon. Many sharp-eyed readers have wondered if the shepherd with his missing hand could in fact be a victim of Damon's justice. So, um, don't know if that will ever be one of those things that's confirmed or if it's just something we have to uh, wonder about forever. But but that's uh, not my original observation, but I think it's it was a good one. So, I uh, mentioned earlier when we were talking about dreams and prophecies that uh, there would be some more spoilery things about that. And so here we go. Uh, just a few more words about that. When uh, Viserys described the Conqueror's dream to Rhaenyra, explaining that this knowledge had been passed down from king to heir since the conquest, you know, a lot of us felt this huge satisfaction that something had just fallen into place. The fandom sprung into action, discussing the implications and the ins and outs of everything. And I am really here for it. Uh, I've been thinking about dragon dreams and their meanings for like a decade. So uh, this is basically some of the first wholly new information we've had in years. 
Although, as Yoke Boy said, George did hint at this exact thing just a few years ago. One of the conclusions everyone seems to have reached is that the tragic impact of the Dance of the Dragons, a huge part of the diminishment of House Targaryen that's being told in this story, will be that Rhaenyra dies without passing this critical piece of information on to her heir, the 11-year-old Prince Aegon, who is also like uh, like Aegon II, is uh, as yet unborn and will eventually watch his uncle feed his mother to his dragon um, before eventually reigning as the last Targaryen king who ever sat on a dragon, however briefly. And I can definitely see for this storyline how that tragic loss of knowledge added to Aegon's already tragic loss would be extremely compelling, and I, I wouldn't be entirely surprised if that's the story the show goes with. Uh, and of course, looking forward, you've got stories about Targaryens, notably Ares I and Prince Rhaegar, being obsessed with prophecies and searching scrolls for arcane knowledge. Uh, so, you know, it could be rediscovered in some way at some point later. But I do want to just suggest, in the name of keeping an open mind, an alternate interpretation which Yoke Boy was alluding to earlier, because you see, when I think about the big picture, I think that the knowledge of this prophecy, one that comes with a, this huge sense of responsibility and very little context, would explain a lot of the peculiarities of House Targaryen after the dance. Um, everything from their obsession with bringing dragons back, uh, as we see with several kings, one of whom tried to build his own dragons, and Yoke Boy mentioned Summerhall, uh, to, you know, things like depression caused by this sort of bizarre responsibility, which, you know, might have led to all kinds of things in people who were basically just humans. Uh, Rhaenyra points out that they're really, without their dragons, they're not any different from everybody else. So, you know, this sort of thing... In, in a weaker-minded person could lead to drink or excess or even apparent madness or possibly religious zealotry like we see with Baylor the Blessed or maybe even to the conquest of Dorne. Because remember that the dream mentions a united Westeros. So it does occur to me that the kind of Targaryen obsession with bringing Dorne into the realm may actually be rooted in this prophecy, you know, we can't just let them go off on their own and be their own people because reasons, not just because we want them, but reasons. Uh, so, I mean, all of those things and more could be explained by knowledge of this dream. And the scroll searchers, uh, those ones who are clearly seeking answers to something they don't have the full picture on. Well, let's think about a game of telephone that plays out over centuries. Think about the wobbly nature of Targaryen succession and consider that for this dream to be passed on from the Conqueror down to Rhaegar isn't impossible, Uh, but it would almost certainly result in degradation of data. And admittedly, uh, you know, all this is mainly circumstantial evidence, but I would encourage you all to keep that open mind because many things have yet to be explained and there do remain a number of possible directions that George could take this thread in. And I do think that one that leads to the knowledge being lost in the account of Robert's Rebellion, as Yoke Boy was saying earlier, with the last Targaryens in the present, 
Viserys, Danny, and John, um, being completely ignorant of their greater purpose, would really be incredibly compelling to the story that George is telling in the main series. So, you know, this story is one thing, the House of the Dragon, but let's not forget that the main event really is A Song of Ice and Fire. So I think options aren't mutually exclusive, but this story is so incredibly complex, and I think it's really important to remember that a great deal of it has yet to be told and um, not jump to conclusions just yet. So I'm cautiously thinking about that, the ways that that um, information could go continue on and I don't think it's unreasonable to think that Rhaenyra would have told each one of her sons in succession as they die tragically um, imagine just I, I'm imagining how awful those scenes would be is as first one then the other of her sons dies and she has to go and tell them <laughs> they get younger and younger about this great responsibility that's gonna rest on their shoulders one day so I I have an open mind. And one more thing, I do think that it's probably harder for me to imagine how this information got from the whole Aenys Magor to Jaehaerys triangle thing than at any other point in the future from where we are right now. So we'll see. Nothing's impossible. <laughs> yeah, you guys, I mean, you guys have covered the prophecy spoilers so well. So I think where I found my niche is to talk a little bit about characterizations of certain divisive figures, you know, amongst the fandom or even in world and how they might deviate or align with our expectations. You know, I'll aim to, you know, cover a character in the spoiler section each week and probably provide updates on how things change or shift uh, later in the season as, as these characters continue to, to develop. Today, I want to talk about someone who, you know, often gets a bad rap for actions that are yet to come, but so far seems really great. No, I'm not talking about Kristen Cole. I am talking about Alicent Hightower today. She got a lot more screen time, so we'll probably come back to Cole. She was humanized in ways that weren't in Fire and Blood. Um, and part of that is due to the kind of dry historical format of the book. In part, I think it's due to, you know, some changes that they appear to have made with her age to make her more lined up with Rhaenyra. And then, uh, a, but a big portion of it is due to the focus of the actions that we, you know, maybe don't like about Allison or the th choices she makes later uh, haven't played out on screen yet. So far, she's great. For Allison, I think that they seem to be building her into a much more sympathetic character. In interviews, you know, her actors both talk about her being the victim of the patriarchy. Um, I was curious what that was going to mean, but when we saw that on screen this week, her father is literally thrusting her into an intimate situation with a grieving king. So, you know, she looks on as Emma is reminding Rhaenyra about a woman's role and her royal womb, but... You know, while that was directed at Rhaenyra, Alicent is also highborn, and providing heirs is presumably her chief responsibility in adulthood as well. You know, between that and her tender relationship with Rhaenyra early on, something that is clearly an addition just for the show, Alicent is hard to find fault in at this stage in the game. Rather than the jealous woman pitted against, you know, jealous women pitted against each other that we read about from the Maester's retellings, perhaps we'll see men like Otto Hightower push his daughter into the role of Rhaenyra's stepmother or, or, uh, and mother to a potential new heir. Will we feel more sympathetic to her when we see Otto pulling the strings or will Alicent have enough agency to own some of her crueler or more treasonous actions down the road? Time will tell. Excellent spoilery conversation. I'll just round up by 
Talking about briefly about something I'm looking forward to in the next few episodes. I'm not exactly sure when this will happen, but I'm really looking forward to the battle against the Triarchy. We'll see Corliss and Damon working together, which is going to be an important partnership deeper into the story. So some good framework there. Uh, the attorney showed a glimpse of the action scenes to come. And as the Civil War takes you know, time to set up all the pieces, get everything in its place. It's going to be great to seeing Sapochnik in his element directing a glorious battle scene on the beach. I'm expecting more set up for this battle against the Triarchy in the next episode. So watch out for that. I don't think the battle is going to come next episode, but it will certainly be mentioned and brought to the front of your minds at some point. So we're going to get to see how Crabfeeder got his name with the characterization in the show being described as grey by many viewers. And, you know, some of them said they don't, it's too grey, but, you know, you know, I'd have to disagree. I, I, I am enjoying this. Uh, perhaps the Crabfeeder will give us that out-and-out -out villain vibe that Game of Thrones did so well, something that we can all agree, you know, this guy is bad news. Let's all hate him. So... Yeah, I look forward to seeing the crab feeder scenes. That's going to be brutal. And then the subsequent battle should be very spectacular. So, yeah, that's my pick of things that are going to be in the next couple of episodes. And I think that about wraps things up for today. I think we've done an hour and a half. That's a, that's a good time to stop. We've got so much to look forward to this season. I hope you keep coming back to Radio Westeros every Tuesday, 7 o'clock, or podcast version soon after. So, and finally, I want to thank Emily of the Erie. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm really looking forward to you joining us for this whole season. I'm glad we've got a sitting guest. And yeah, at Emily of the Erie on Twitter, give her a follow. Okay, so if you enjoy the show, why not become a patron? Head to patreon.com. And I think we should end today's broadcast with credits of uh, Valerian Steel and Castle Steel patrons. Thanks to all patrons. Take it away, Lady Gwyn. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valerian Steel patrons, Aerodo, Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Aka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Cabot the Unfrozen, Marja the Mage, David, Dean, Drew, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Yuna of House Haiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, The Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lorraine, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerless of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And our Castle Steel patrons, AJ, Aegon the Sixth, the only arsling you need, Alex, Ally B, Ally C, Oakenfist, Bran the Builder, Amber, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Brendan B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarion the White Storm, Julie Bath of Tarth, 
Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Mats, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick Wanyrick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Philip, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Sherry, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hema Hellman, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Warren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioesteros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you again next week. Bye for now. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.